everybody. We are going to be continuing. Last week was our first week as we launched this new series, First and Second Peter. Uh, once again, if you missed last week, if you've missed getting one of these Bible notebooks, they're on the table right outside the doors if you want to go grab one to take notes in as we go through this series. But last week we did First Peter, the introduction to the letters. We explained kind of the historical context. And then we just looked at the first two verses. And we looked at understanding when these letters were written, who these letters were written to, why that matters. And then we looked at, we, we examined the question, right, why is this happening to me? Why is fill in the blank happening to me? And we looked at these beautiful truths that regardless of what we're going through, God's sovereignty does not change. And that what we're, go we're going through is for our holiness, for our sanctification to be more like Jesus. And so we're therefore meant to respond in obedience to Christ in whatever situations we found ourselves in. And we really, we summarized that verse, verse 2, with this incredible, just encouraging statement to me that, look, we're not trying to belittle pain, we're not trying to belittle difficulty and suffering and trials, but whatever we're going through, it may be painless, but, or it may be painful, but it is not meaningless. And that was just in verse 2. And so now we come to verses 3, 4, and 5, and I want to read those and then just pray. So if you'll join me, we're in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Please join me in prayer. Lord, Lord, I thank you for this room of former orphans. I thank you that I'm a former orphan and that this family gathered here, this beloved family, is, is a family of former orphans. Thank you for your sacrifice, for the atonement you made for our sins, the penalty you paid. Thank you for the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness it is such a privilege to be a part of your body. And Lord, in this time, as we come to your word, may we come to it humbly. May we come to it not wanting it to change for us, but fully prepared to change to be in line with your word and what you say. We surrender to you in this time. Lead this conversation. Open our hearts. Open our ears, our minds. Lord, give me your words. Get rid of me up here entirely. Make this time all about Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. And so kind of what we did with, with verse 2 is we're just going to do this with verses 3, 4, and 5. We are just going to go through and we're going to unpack the incredible truths in these verses just idea by idea and we're going to watch how they build. And really the takeaway this week, my hope is that this will just be such an encouragement for you all. Um, this, was, this was a great week for me. God knew where I would be and I'm not going to lie. I had a pretty crappy couple of days this week where I was just, I was physically exhausted. I was emotionally exhausted. I was mentally drained. And I was, I just wasn't in a great place for, for a good chunk of this week. 
and my wife and I, we had great conversation, and she just she reminded me of these things. And God's word reminded me of these things. So I was immensely encouraged by these verses this week. And my hope is that for you, that if you've had a rough week this past week or recently, or maybe you've had like a great stretch of 10 years, but a rough week is coming at some point. And so remember these verses for the beautiful encouragement they are and the joy that it is to know these and to have access to these and to be familiar with these verses. But we're going to start in verse 3 where it says, according to his great mercy. And this, this is where the gospel begins. This is where the truth and the beauty and the power of Jesus begins. According to his great mercy. That last song that we sung, what have I done to deserve love like this? Nothing. Absolutely not a thing. We provided the sin that made Jesus' death necessary. And that's pretty much the extent of what I brought to the table. And what you all brought to the table. God brought to the table his great mercy. Listen to these verses. This is Psalm 14, 1 through 3. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none. There is none who does good. R.C. Sproul has a great quote. He says, people say, why do, good thing, or why do bad things happen to good people? And R.C. Sproul says, that happened once and he volunteered for it. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Psalm 51, 3-5, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, David's writing to God, he says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Romans 3, 23-25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is reality. We're lying to ourselves if we claim anything else. But then this is the second half of reality. Romans 3, 23 through 25. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. Amen. The propitiation. I won't throw you men on the spot, but for the men who have been coming to Bible study, we know what this word means. It's a big fancy word. What did we settle on? It's a 20. I, I said it was a $10 word, and the room kept throwing out different value amounts, and I think we settled on it's a $25 word. It's a big word. What's propitiation mean? It means the penalty has been paid in full. We're not sitting at the restaurant table splitting the bill with Jesus. He's got it. Penalties paid, satisfied, wrath is dealt with. Death is dealt with. Sin is dealt with. According to His mercy, according to His grace. Bruce read, and I just want to remind us of the idea, Ephesians 2, 1-9, through 9, we won't read the whole passage. You were dead in trespasses and sin. We were dead. That's the first idea. Following the passions of this world. That's the second idea. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and by nature, 
children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. And he goes on to talk about by grace you have been saved and by grace alone. According to his great mercy. One idea in this passage that should fill our hearts with such joy and gratitude. When we wake up and say, I don't know what to be thankful for today. I don't know what to pray for today. Look, if you know nothing else to pray for in a day, praise God for his great mercy. Christians should be the most grateful people on this planet. Because better than anyone else, we should understand the depth of our depravity and sin and the beauty of his mercy. Our lives should overflow with a spirit of gratitude. Why? Because according to his great mercy rings true every moment of our lives. And Peter is writing this to a group of people undergoing immense trial and suffering and persecution. And he's reminding them, hey, go back to God's mercy. Remind yourselves of God's mercy. Focus on God's mercy. Remember we looked at last week, one of the themes of these letters is how to live victoriously in the midst of trial and suffering without becoming bitter. Well, we remember God's great mercy. And then according to his great mercy, he did what? What's the next idea that we come across? Because see, people will claim, and I've engaged with people who will say, that hell is evidence that God is cruel. Hell is evidence that God is unfair. Hell is, hell is evidence that God is mean. No. Hell is evidence that God is just. Hell is evidence that God is fair. Heaven the fact that any single one of us can be in heaven is proof that God is merciful, is proof that God is good, is proof that God is great and great in his love and great in his compassion. Because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to raise up from death to life. I mean, stop and think about that. Think about the miracle of that. For anybody who says God doesn't do miracles anymore, that's just a, that's an Old Testament thing, that's a New Testament thing. Miracles don't happen anymore. Or, like, dead people get raised to life every day. That's miraculous. That's incredible. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. Listen to these passages. 2 Corinthians 5. 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through God reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, newness of life. 
Ephesians 4, 17, starting in verse 17, going through verse 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This is who we were. Remember in Ephesians 2 where it says we were dead in our sin? We were given to the path. Like, that's who we were. So when you read those verses, your first thought should not be, oh man, those sinners. Your first thought should be like, wow, that's who I was. That's who God redeemed. That's incredible. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then consider this passage in 2 Peter that we'll wind up spending more time in later in this series. But it's a, it's a beautiful passage for this truth that He has caused us to be born again. 2 Peter 1, 3-4, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. You have everything you need to live a life of godliness. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You are a participant of the divine nature. Let that blow your minds. So the question for believers, right, the excuse, we don't get to, I don't get to hide behind the excuse of, well, I'm just, I'm not, you know, I'm an angry person. I just, look, my fuse is long. I mean, I've been guilty of literally saying this. I've got a long fuse, but when it finally hits, you better watch out. I'll blow up. Okay, Sam, well, that's unbiblical. So be holier. We don't get to say that. And I'm not talking about, let's be clear, I'm not talking about mental anxiety, mental health, medically diagnosed things. I'm talking about our spirit. We don't get to say, well, I'm just an anxious person. You don't understand, I'm just not a peaceful person. You don't understand, I'm just, I'm not a patient person. No, you weren't a patient person. You weren't a peaceful person. And then that person died. And you are now raised in newness of life, indwelt by the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So Christians, we don't get to say things like, well, I'm just not a fill-in-the-blank. What we have to admit is, well, I'm just choosing not to abide in the spirit of fill-in-the-blank. We've been born again. we got to live like it. I mean, plain and simple. Like it, doesn't, it doesn't get any more straightforward than that. The world needs to be able to look at believers and say, you are different from them. It is visibly noticeable that your behavior, your manner of speech, the way you interact with people, the way you deal with customer service on the phone is different from the way I deal with customer service on the phone. The way you treat wait staff, the way you drive, the way you treat your neighbor who constantly moves their leaves onto your side of the property line. 
I mean, these are the everyday situations where we have a chance to present to the world a different perspective, and we need to. Why? Because we've been born again, according to his great mercy. It's incredible, it's challenging, it's humbling, it's uplifting. It's just this wonderful truth to chew on, to sink our teeth into, to meditate on in our hearts. And then what's he say? He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm going to ask you a question. It's not a trick question. I'm going to reread this verse or that phrase so you know the answer to this question. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where does our hope come from? Okay, I'm going to read it again, very slowly, and then you're all going to very loudly say the answer. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where does our hope come from? The resurrection of Christ from the dead. Excellent. You guys did so well on that. Our hope comes from the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What is a very famous verse in these letters? Yell out, I'm going to ask for one word. Always be prepared to give an answer. Some translations will say defend. Always be prepared to defend, to give an answer for what? For the reason, for the hope that you have. So let's apply some logic. Always be prepared to give an answer, to give a reason, to defend the, the, the basis of your hope. What is the basis of our hope? The resurrection of Jesus. So always be prepared to defend, to give an answer justifying the resurrection. Mike, I work with you. We're at the fire station. You're always talking about church. You're trying to invite me. Dude, I could never believe. Like, you realize you've based your whole faith on someone coming back from the dead. That, that's crazy. I mean, haven't you ever considered, like, I'm a history student. You realize that Romans were pros at torture and execution, and they designed crucifixion to be as humiliating and make as much of a public statement as possible. So death on the cross took, on average, 12 to up to 48 hours. I mean, that's just history. And you're, you're telling me that he died in only a couple of hours? No, he passed out. And then he was revived by the coolness of the tomb. It would have brought down his fever. It would have helped with the infection. I, you can't believe in the resurrection. But Mark, we work together. You're always talking about this Jesus person. He resurrected from the dead, really? No. His disciples knew that he was supposed to come back from the dead, so they broke into the tomb, they stole his body, and that way they could perpetuate this myth that he resurrected from the dead. I mean, think about it. He had thousands of disciples. That would have been easy for them to do. There's no way he came back from the dead. How many of you, if your coworkers, if your friends, if your family came to you and they started asking those things, your response would be, uh, here's my phone, call Sam. You guys have to be prepared to defend the reason for the hope that you have. You have to be prepared to defend the resurrection. And it's our responsibility, Ephesians 4.11, to equip you to do so. So that's what we're going to do right now. It's going to be a little different from a sermon you might be used to. 
We're going to get back to the exegetical, expositional, working through the passage. But as we're working through this passage, we come to the reason for our hope is the resurrection of Jesus. I have been instructed to equip you all to defend the reason for that hope. And so I want to do that. And hopefully you come away with this with a deeper appreciation and understanding and preparation to engage with a skeptical world. Because we can't be afraid of these questions. There's an answer to them. First, Hebrews 7.25, talking about the hope of the resurrection. Let this verse remind you of that. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. See, if Christ hasn't been resurrected from the dead, then he doesn't live to make intercession for my sins, so my sins aren't forgiven. Everything I believe and claim is a lie. I mean, the gospel hinges on the resurrection. Paul writes this to the early church. So we got to understand it, and we got to be able to defend it. So we're just going to do that, Right? The first reason that I believe the resurrection happened is because the Bible says it did. And to anybody you know who wants to dismiss the Bible, come talk to me afterwards. I mean, we will go through manuscript evidence. We will go through external confirmation. We will go through internal confirmation. Like, we will use every secular form of measuring the validity of a historical text. And I believe demonstrate that the Bible is the single most historically reliable text that we have. And so therefore, because the Bible says it, I believe it. But I get that people don't, unbelievers may not accept this. So we can work through that with them, but we can also work through the objections to the resurrections from their perspectives. First, you have the wrong tomb theory. We're going to start with this one because it's the easiest one to debunk. Uh, the wrong tomb theory. The women went to the wrong tomb. They're emotionally distraught. This is the most traumatic time of their life, right? They simply went to another tomb that was in preparation, waiting for another body to come to it. That's why the stone was rolled away. That's why it was empty. They just went to the wrong tomb. Uh, that, that, okay, um, I see where you're coming from logically, right? But let's think about that, mysterious friend. Well, then why didn't the Jewish authorities just show them the right tomb? Right? I mean, the Jewish authorities were so opposed to the idea of the resurrection. Why wouldn't, you know, if, if the disciples are saying, hey, Jesus resurrected from the dead, how easy would it be for the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities to say, no, here's the right tomb. See, it's still sealed with chains and the stamp of Caesar. It's still got the guards out front. Move the stone. There's the body. I mean, anyone who wants to claim the wrong tomb theory, let's just apply some logic. Why wouldn't they just show them the right tomb? Boom. This whole Christianity problem dealt with. We can go about in our ways. We can remain in our power structure. Jesus is still dead. Disciples, you have no leg to stand on. Here's the right tomb. And also, interesting side note, women in that day were not allowed to be legal witnesses. So to include the detail that they were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection would have made the story less believable to the culture. I mean, like, to put it in modern perspective, that's like, I grew up in Akron, right? And so we would play basketball in the pickup courts. Like, the one time, LeBron James, he's from Akron, he came back, he visited the park. I happened to be there. He stepped onto the court, and, you know, he was like, hey, let me jump in the game. And, guys, I scored a basket over LeBron James. Like, now, he gave me some distance, and he was like, you know, go ahead, take the shot. But technically speaking, I scored a basket over LeBron James. That's 
semi-plausible, right? You're like, okay, if LeBron was, you know, maybe 20 feet back and Sam was only three feet from the hoop. But that, that's, that's kind of plausible, right? Well, LeBron is from Akron. All right, I get this. Now, what if I told you that version of the story and I was like, yeah, so I play basketball in Akron, right? We're at the park, LeBron James shows up and he comes on the court and he is trying his absolute hardest and I dunked on him. Ask that blind guy, he saw it. He'd be like, dude, you're the worst liar in the history of the world. That's what it would have been like, including the testimony of the women. Culturally, they would have been like, their word doesn't count. Why would you include this detail that makes your story less believable? Here's the right tomb. I mean, the wrong tomb theory, all you have to do is ask them to really think logically about what they're claiming in opposition to the resurrection. Then you have the swoon theory. What I said earlier, Mike's coworker was peppering him with. Right? The Romans designed crucifixion to be long and drawn out and humiliating. So Jesus wouldn't have died that quickly. He just passed out, and then the coolness of the tomb brought down his fever, came back, you know, snuck out, snuck past the guards, just went and hid, and that enabled the disciples to claim that he was resurrected. Okay, well, first, historically speaking, you want to talk about history? Great, Mike's coworker. Let's talk about history. The Romans are arguably the best executioners in the history of the world. I mean, they, like, they designed these things. And in multiple places, we have eyewitness accounts that several Roman soldiers pronounced Jesus dead. So, like, top three executioners in history are like, yep, we did it, we killed him, he's dead. I mean, that's from a historical perspective. What about medicine? Let's talk about science. Let's talk about medicine. Hypovolemic shock. Hypovolemic shock is when your body crashes due to traumatic blood loss. Where you, your body has lost more blood, right? I'm like, I'm saying this very confidently because I think I got these phrases right. We're talking about two phrases, hypovolemic shock and pleural effusion. And okay, I've got one medical person, so I'm pronouncing the words correctly. But hypovolemic shock, your body crashes because it's lost way too much blood, way too quickly, and it's marked by passing out. You physically can't stand anymore. You can't sustain yourself anymore. Your kidneys start to shut down. And so thirst, intense thirst, would mark this as well. What do we see that happened to Jesus in this process? He passed out. His body was too weak. He could not sustain himself anymore. He had extreme thirst as his kidneys are shutting down from this hypovolemic shock. And then this would lead to pericardial effusion and pleural effusion. And now some of you are like, yep, I'm out. You can understand that. If I can understand this, you guys can understand this. And be prepared to use this to talk to people. Pericardial effusion and pleural effusion. So as your body is shutting down, it starts to produce this excess liquid. And now I, I have to go right to the medical definition. Prior to death, the sustained rapid heartbeat caused by hypovolemic shock also causes fluid to gather in the sac around the heart and the lungs. This gathering of fluid in the membrane around the heart is called pericardial effusion, and the fluid gathering around the lungs is called pleural effusion. This explains why after Jesus died and a Roman soldier thrust a spear through his side, piercing both the lungs and the heart, both blood and clear water came out because of the pericardial and pleural effusion. So historically, Jesus died. Medically, Jesus died. And then let's, I mean, you want to toss that aside? Cool, we'll toss it aside. 
So now I want you to look me in the eye and I want you to tell me that you really believe someone who is, and by the way, Maslin and Mitchell, two doctors from England in the Royal Academy Journal of Sciences, they studied historical crucifixion and they found that death could happen as quickly as an hour depending on the trauma inflicted on the body beforehand. 40 lashes, yeah, you could die very quickly on the cross. You've got doctors who have said, no, Jesus has died. But let's, let's toss all that aside. I want you to look me in the eye and tell me, Joe, dude, look me in the eye and tell me that you really believe that someone who has gone through that much physical trauma, laying inside a damp, rocky hole in the ground, hello, infection, could on his own revive enough to tip over a massive stone that would have been taken multiple people to push in place, Oh, and by the way, was chained in place. And then after this person pushed over that stone, breaking the chains, they fought off multiple armed soldiers and then escaped and then convinced a group of people, hey, I am the resurrected king without any medical attention. I mean, to believe the swoon theory, you have to have as much faith as to believe in resurrection. There are skeptics who have rejected this. You've got David Strauss. David Strauss was a 19th century rationalist who denied the deity of Jesus. So you have someone who denies that Jesus is Lord. In talking about the swoon theory, he says, it is impossible that a being who had stolen half dead out of the sepulchre, out of the grave, who crept about weak and ill and in desperate need of medical treatment, could have given the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death. He's like, it's impossible. There's no way somebody who went through this is going to convince people that he has beaten death. So someone who won't even believe that Jesus is God is like, the swoon theory has no merit to it whatsoever. Okay, well, what about the grave robber theory? You've got all these disciples. They gang up on the soldiers. They steal Jesus' body. That's how it really happened. Okay, well, first... The grave robber theory is predicated on the fact you have to believe, in order to assert the grave robber theory, people who assert the grave robber theory do so on the basis that the disciples knew Jesus was going to resurrect, so they went ahead and did this. Except by the disciples' own admission, they had no clue Jesus was going to resurrect until after it happened. There are multiple places in Scripture where it talks about they did not understand the resurrection. They did not understand. So you've got the own people admitting, I didn't know that was going to happen. And that's an admission that makes them look like they don't understand, right? Like, we normally want to make ourselves look as good as possible. Of course I knew what Jesus was going to, like, I totally, look, Peter and, like, those guys, they didn't understand, but I understood, right? No, you've got multiple disciples who are like, oh, I didn't understand. No, I was totally, like, I totally missed the point of what he was saying. So the whole basis of this theory is already suspect. But then let's look at psychology, Again, you don't want to use the Bible, coworker. That's fine. Let's look at psychology. You have a group of people scared for their lives, hiding behind locked doors, who won't even show their faces in public. And then you have them standing in the most public place in front of their enemies, proudly proclaiming and declaring the gospel. That flies against every understanding of human psychology that we have. You can't explain this radical transformation based on them perpetuating a lie. Because in order to subscribe to the grave robber theory, you have to assert that the disciples did all their behavior knowing what they were doing was built on a lie. 
People won't die for a lie. I dunked over LeBron James. Sam, you're going to die unless you admit that's not true. I'm not sticking to the story that I dunked over LeBron James if my life is on the line. Mike, you're like, yeah, Sam dunked over LeBron James. Mike, you're going to die unless you admit that Sam didn't dunk over LeBron How quickly are you like, there's not a chance Sam dunked over LeBron James? Not one of the disciples recounted. Not one of the disciples withdrew their claims that Jesus resurrected. I mean, they were martyred for this. They died for this. They believed this entirely. And again, skeptics admit this. Michael Grant, a historian and agnostic. So an agnostic, someone who's like, I don't know if Jesus is real. I don't know if God's real. Nobody can know. So again, an individual who does not claim Jesus to be Lord, and as a historian, he firmly rejects the, whole, the grave robber theory. He says the early followers of Jesus were utterly convinced that he had been resurrected. They were not in any way, shape, or form operating under the pretense of a lie. And then also, Paul Little, in his book, Know Why You Believe, he makes this observation, that the head cloth and the grave clothes were folded and left neatly on the slab in the tomb. So Paul Little just asks this simple question. Are we really supposed to accept that in the middle of pulling off the greatest scam in the history of the world, they were like, wait, hold up, we want to make sure it looks neat before we leave. There are Roman soldiers, but we want to make sure we take time to do the laundry. I mean, again, the logic just completely falls apart when you start looking at the grave robber theory. And then the last one's the hallucination theory. And this is just that everyone who saw Jesus, uh, you know, under extreme duress of the trauma of their, who they thought was the Savior dying, they hallucinated it. And they imagined that they saw him. Again, using medical knowledge, we've never in the history of the world had such a standard of mass hallucinations. Jesus appeared 10 different times to groups of people between the resurrection and the ascension. And we're talking over 500 people. Over 500 different people saw the resurrected Jesus. There is not a single shred of evidence in the history of humanity to suggest that that many people under those many different circumstances at that many different times would have the same hallucination. So again, to subscribe to the hallucination theory, you have to reject psychology, logic, science. Like All of these objections to the resurrection they're about as effective of holding, you know, truth as my hands are of holding the ocean. There's just no weight to them. So when people object to what we believe, don't shy away from that. Say, you know what? I appreciate that you've thought about this. I appreciate that you've taken this seriously and you've considered it. Let's have an honest conversation. Be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have. All of this evidence is why I am absolutely convinced that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Because it's the truth. And this is the beauty of engaging with God's word, is that we get to do so not only with our heart, but with our mind. And we get to engage a world that's doubting and help them work through these things. And then the last thing we see 
is, okay, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The point I just want to make quickly here is you don't earn an inheritance. You receive it. Especially as former orphans. John 1, 12 through 13, But to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Romans 8, 15 through 17 talks about, We have not received a spirit of fear that leads us back into slavery, but we have received a spirit of adoption by which we can call God Abba, Father. And it goes on to say that because we have been adopted, we are now co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8, 31 through 39, that beautiful passage that says, I'm convinced of these things, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither heights nor depths. And he lists all these incredible things that cannot separate us from the love of God. Hebrews 12, 22 through 23, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Revelation 21, 2 through 4, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. This is our inheritance. This is our beautiful, wonderful, undefiled, imperishable inheritance that God in his mercy in his love looked at you and said I adopt you into my family I give you this promised inheritance and I guard it for you according to his great mercy we should wake up and be the most grateful people on this planet according to that imperishable inheritance we should be the most hopeful joyful people on this planet not talking about a, a, an emotion of happiness. I'm talking about a spirit of joy. These verses are so encouraging. Know them. Treasure them. Guard them in your hearts. Be reminded of his mercy. Be reminded of the newness of life you've been raised to. And rejoice in the certainty of the resurrection. The hope, the reminder of our inheritance. This week as we consider these things... Read Ezekiel 37, Hosea 11, Joel 2, and Micah 7. You'll see beautiful themes tied throughout these Old Testament passages. We've got the cards for you on your way out the door. And then as you read through these chapters, as you consider this message, evaluate your life. Am I living as a new creation? Do you see evidence of the newness of life in my everyday? Prayer ideas? You struggle with what to pray for? You, I don't know what to pray for? Praise God for His mercy. Praise God for the newness of life. Confess the ways in which we are not walking in newness of life. Thank Him for the certainty of the resurrection. Thank Him for the hope. Thank Him for the inheritance. And ask Him to strengthen us to live as ambassadors taking this message of reconciliation to the world. And then the connect idea this week, just encourage another believer. 
Send somebody else in the church a text like, man, we have so, like Thurber, we have so much fun hanging out now. Imagine how great it's going to be to hang out in heaven. Be encouraged this week, dude. Just, just build one another up. Remind us of the inheritance. Remind us of the hope. Let's be people of joy who encourage one another. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you that it can be examined. It can be scrutinized. It can be tested and measured. And it is found true at every turn. Thank you for that. Thank you for the resurrection and the hope of our inheritance. That it is imperishable. That it cannot be defiled. And that you are guarding it for those who believe. The strength of that promise. Lord, we praise you. And we celebrate you. Blessed be you, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Lord, blessed be your name for these truths. Be glorified in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.